Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Word is a proud media partner of Latitude Festival 2012. For more information and to purchase tickets, go to www.latitudefestival.co.uk. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. It struck me recently that I never used to stand in bookshops and read a, more than half a paragraph in a bookshop in a, before before buying a book. I just never did it. Did you ever do that? Only with uh, cookbooks. Yeah, I can imagine how you might do it with an instructional book, but a piece of fiction. I've never done it. I've started doing it in a really big way recently on the Kindle, because with the Kindle, they offer you a sample chapter. And that's particularly appealing with fiction, crime fiction or thrillers or whatever, where everything's... You're always told everything is amazing and you're going to like it. So you're obviously feeling is you just want to sample it. And so I've started reading free sample chapters of all kinds of things. And um, it's, 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 it's me. I, I read one in five of the things that I read a sample chapter. So is, it, is it taking you in directions you might not have otherwise gone in? I suppose it might be, yeah, it might be leading me to authors I might, I might not have tried because I might have been put off by their, their branding or <laughs> the kind of the iconography they used on the cover and thing, you know, because you read these things and you're not aware of the cover at all. No, sure. Which is really odd because you're so used to having your perception shaped by the cover and it's not there at all. What have you been reading recently? I've just finished a book called Escape from Camp 14, which is another in my uh, long list of uh, North Korean tomes that I've been ploughing through. And this one's about uh, the only guy, as far as we know, who's born to a North Korean death camp to escape and uh, tell the story. And he's been over here recently. He's been over here. I went to see him do a Q&A session on Tuesday, which was absolutely extraordinary. Um, very, very composed, very, very good speaker. I mean, speaking in Korean, it's been translated. But coming from the background he, he came from, which is the exact opposite of the current leader who's the same age and did his own maiden speech last week, it was a real mess. It was just absolutely extraordinary. <laughs> really? Well, the reason we're talking about books is this is a bit of a special word podcast uh, about books because we've been talking to three authors uh, in the last week and you're going to be hearing from them in a moment. Uh, Andrew Martin has written a book called Underground Overground, A Passenger's History of the Tube. Uh, we've got Paul Charles, a well-known rock and roll agent, has written a book called Last Dance, which is set against the background of the Irish show band scene of the 60s. 
But first of all, um, we had Stanley Booth in here. Stanley Booth will be well known to fans of the Rolling Stones as the author of a book called The True Adventures of the Rolling Stones, which is based in his experience uh, touring with them in the late 60s, pretty much at the zenith of their creativity. The book didn't come out until the mid-80s and has now been reissued in a rather splendid new edition from Canongate. And he explained why it was delayed between the 60s and the 80s and so forth in due course. But first of all, as is traditional, we asked him, what music was in his house when he was growing up? My parents had very wide-ranging musical tastes. Um, they played Bing Crosby. They played the Trumpeteers, a great gospel quartet. My father used to sing Jimmy Rogers songs to me. T for Texas, T for Tennessee, T for Thelma, the gal that made a wreck out of me. Right. Um, when they aged a bit, they stopped listening to music but uh, they had already infected me with uh, with a deep affection for for various kinds of music so this was great did you grow up in memphis or no i grew up um well i went to memphis when i was 17 and you you i think you talk in the book about uh Having gone down to Beale Street, or I was reading somewhere, talk about going down to Beale Street in the latter days of Beale Street, trying to get in to see Ray Charles and so forth. Is that right? Yeah, uh, I was sitting with some... uh, Memphis State University had just uh, integrated, and uh, some black young people had gone to the... um, responsible authorities and said you 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 don't let us go to school here and they were told we never told you you couldn't go to school here of course you could go to school here and uh, I went to a Ray Charles concert I talked to Ray about it I was thrown out because I was sitting with black students you know my classmates can't remember the name of the man who put that show on but um he was very unsympathetic and uh, threw me and a friend out on our ear. And uh, so I never, I didn't get to see Ray until some years later. So when are we talking about then, the early 60s or something? Yeah. Right, okay. So when did your paths across with the Rolling Stones? Uh, I met the Stones in September of 1968 in London. How come you were in London? You were a writer for magazines and so forth? Yeah, yeah. I was interested in the Stones, and uh, I managed to get an assignment from a magazine and and came over and met Ian Stewart, which was most fortunate because uh, he told the other Stones about me. And, uh, you know, they had B.B. King's albums, uh, but I knew B.B. I was his friend, and I could introduce him to the stones which i did so they they had a use for me they right. kept me around so what was your take on them as as a somebody coming from the southern states where that music had come from which is what inspired them how did you respond to their take on it well i found their take on it very um, believable and uh, admirable they were true disciples of the blues and uh, of course I was as well. So we—they uh, never thought of me as a critic or a writer. They just 
thought of me as a friend. And uh, when Keith's book, Life, came out, uh, I was gratified to see he mentions me and says, our friend Stanley Booth. So you hooked up with them. The, the book, The True Adventures of the Rolling Stones, is is based around their 1969 tour of the United States. Right. Uh, which seems to be the tour that... Well, they kind of came back for that tour, didn't they? They hadn't toured for a number of years. You know, they'd only toured as a kind of visiting big group, hadn't they? Yeah. This they came back as the greatest rock and roll band in the world, as they were as they were billed. Well, they never called themselves that, but um, Sam Cutler made up that phrase. It's a bit hubristic, but um, they were a great band at that time. Because the, the, the theory now, very often, is that they were actually at their best when Mick Taylor was in that group. Oh, man. I think that's true. There's just he, something he knitted was a together. Prodigy. He turned 21 on that tour, and uh, he was really a wonderful musician. I think the Stones have made some unfortunate aesthetic choices, but uh, Ronnie Woods is very good. He's been with them longer than anybody now. Uh, he's a very underrated musician. But that was an extraordinary time. Fraser and I were actually looking this morning before you came on YouTube but a clip from the Gimme Shelter movie mm-hmm. where uh, the Rolling Stones are, I think, hanging about waiting for a helicopter to take them from San Francisco out to Altamont at the yeah, end of that yeah. tour. There's the Rolling Stones and there's the Grateful Dead. You know? yeah. It just seems extraordinary. And there's there's no major security. There's no sense of... Great no, importance it, it was, or anything was, like that. There was no security. <laughs> that's that's the impression you get when you say that's the thing that amazes me when I look at photographs of that tour. That the audience were pressed right up against the stage, weren't You're they? Right. There was no pit. There was no security. No nothing. No were you pit, terrified? No. no. Um, yeah, a lot of the time I was absolutely terrified, I, in fear of my life. Because you were at Altamont. Were you one of the people crowding onto the stage at Altamont? I was. Right behind Keith Samps. So what's your major memory of that, of that incident? Well, of course, the, uh, when the young man pulled a revolver and five minutes later was dead, uh, having been knifed by an Hell's Angel, that made a very powerful impression on me. You had the feeling at Altamont that you could die in the next minute and there was nothing you could do to prevent it. You were there at another key moment, I think, uh, which is recounted in the book in, in great detail, um, which is also uh, you can see on YouTube. You can now catch up with all these things on YouTube, which is when they were recording at Muscle Shoals. Yeah, yeah, that was a wonderful experience. We spent like three days and they cut uh, You Got to Move, Brown Sugar, and Wild Horses. And uh, that was a wonderful session. I, I was influential in getting them to the Muscle Shoals studio, and uh, I've always been kind of proud of that. I got Jim Dickinson to play piano on Wild Horses, and uh, that's one of my favorite Stones tracks of all time. What what do you think uh, appealed to them about the kind of southern way of doing things musically? They had their own way of doing things, and... uh, at Muscle Shoals, they were free to rehearse to their heart's content. And the Stones are interesting. I mean, when they start working on a track, they sound like rankest amateurs. And um, at a certain point, I remember I went out 
and got some coffee and came back to the studio and what had been chaos had resolved itself into uh, order and um, it had just happened in the few minutes when I was not there. Yeah, yeah. I was, there was a, a phrase which I actually written down from the book. You, you described them uh, playing in that studio, sorting themselves out within the music in the only way they knew how to work. Yeah. Because they, ne- they never verbalize anything, do they? That's the impression I get about the Rolling Stones. Very they, little. They just play until somehow they hope something comes out of it. That's right. Right, right, right. It's a, it was an extraordinary occasion those uh, those sessions, which, as I say, you can you can uh, you can. I had see never on seen any group of musicians work as hard as the Stones did. I mean, they they basically didn't know what they were doing, but they kept plugging away until they had what they wanted. Did you find it difficult as an outsider to uh, to find any place in the kind of you always get the impression it's very complex politics within the Rolling Stones. They're very difficult relationships between well, particularly Mickey and Keith. Well, in uh, we, there were like eight or ten of us on that tour, and we were just a bunch of comrades riding together, and um, I felt very privileged to be there. Did you feel that you were going to be one of those people that, who were drawn into the orbit of the Rolling Stones who was, who was adversely affected by it and could uh, never go back to normal life? Well, I, I wasn't adversely affected by it. I was very positively affected by it. Right. I mean, I uh, I don't. I'm not one of those people who uh, thinks the Stones are some kind of satanic influence. They're just uh, sincere music lovers. So you also in the book you're going back and retracing their individual life stories that led them right. into the Rolling Stones. Right. And one of the most um, moving bits in the book is you go back to to meet brian jones's parents didn't yes, you? yes not long after he died presumably yes tell us about that you went to cheltenham went to cheltenham and um, ate a cheese sandwich and went to Bur- the jones's flat and um, that was very touching i mean the they poor people they had no concept of who brian was or or what his importance was they were very kind to talk to me at all and they were very sensitive and still obviously in great pain did it surprise you where these people came from when you came from america and saw the kind of suburban backgrounds of british suburban backgrounds of these people was it surprising to you in any way well in a way it was it's just that this music is so persuasive i mean slim harpo um B.B. King, Freddie King, Albert King, Aretha Franklin. The um, Stones music came from a very uh, deep, evocative atmosphere. And uh, I had been at Stax when Otis and Steve Cropper wrote Dock of the Bay. You were in the studio. I was the only other person there. Uh, they, they, We had three chairs, and, they, you know, and Otis sang, Sitting in the morning sun. I'll be sitting when the evening come, watching the ships roll in, and I'll watch them roll away again. He said, but that's all I got. He said, I can't. I, he's just sitting there. I, I can't. I got, it got to be more to it than that. And over several hours, they uh, completed Dock of the Bay. I came in the next day, and Steve was in the in the control room playing a tape of Dock of the Bay. And there were these birds on it, seagulls. And um, I said, Steve, 
where'd you get them birds? And he said, sound effects. I said, oh, sound effects. You know, I felt like a fool, which I was. But um, that was a wonderful, wonderful week. Said goodbye to Otis on Friday and Sunday night he was dead. I don't know if you've seen the pictures of him being taken out of Lake Monona, but um, they're just horrible. And then the record went on to be his biggest hit, didn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he he had had big records before Try a Little Tenderness, but um, he did Hard to Handle and several other tracks that week, and I was just mesmerized watching him work. What's special about Memphis, musically? If one were an archaeologist, one would find the greatest concentration of of um, music and musicians in Memphis. Um, the greatest musician I've ever known was Phineas Newborn, uh, a jazz pianist from, from Memphis. He was awesome, and uh, I made a tape of him for Keith, and uh, Keith played it until it broke, but he copied it before it broke. He's probably still got that tape. That's the magic of Memphis, those kind of people. Well, yeah. Just so many different kinds of approaches to music, um, gospel. The the jug bands were just colossal. Cannons, jug stompers. I wash my teeth in diamond dust. I don't care if the banks go bust. Done got to the place where my money never runs out. That's, That's a wonderful feeling. I'm sure Gus Cannon's money ran out. Every few days, but um, the Memphis Jug Band was awesome. Um, Noah Lewis was one of the greatest harmonic players who ever lived. And uh, Gus Cannon said, I don't know uh, why Noah played so good and loud. Maybe it was all that cocaine. How do you feel about the way the Memphis is nowadays? It's a big mus- music tourism destination, isn't it, people? Well, Beale Street is uh, a very big tourist destination, and um, there's not the same productivity in terms of uh, recording. The 60s were a really um, a great era, and um, I wangled a, an assignment from the Saturday Evening Post and uh, went to... Stacks and American and some of the other studios and I had met Furry Lewis who became like my grandfather and uh, I've just really been blessed with acceptance and support from some of the greatest musicians of all time. Well a lot of it's recorded in The True Adventures of the Rolling Stones by Stanley Booth which is uh, republished by uh, Cannon Gate. Stanley thanks very much for coming in. It's my pleasure. Thank you for asking me. The Word Podcast, one of the few things you really need in life. Stanley Booth, interesting that he agreed with our theory, Fraser, that the zenith of the Rolling Stones is when Mick Taylor was a member of the group. One day everyone will. One day everyone will rise as one and accept that this was the best of the Rolling Stones. I love that story about Otis Redding. That's just incredible. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? There are three chairs in the studio, and Steve Proper's on one, Otis Redding's on the other... And you, chummy, are on the other one. Yeah, beat that. <laughs> I wonder if you thought, I'm going to be telling that story for the rest of my yeah, life you know, when it absolutely actually happened. It's amazing, actually. We'll try and post this on the site. We're also looking at Stanley in 1969 when we were looking at a clip from the Rolling Stones in Gimme Shelter of them hanging about the San Francisco Embarcadero. 
waiting to be helicoptered to the site of Altamont, yeah. which is just amazing, isn't it? The Rolling Stones, Stanley Booth, and The Grateful Dead. It's like something out of Stella Street, isn't yes, it? completely, yeah. It's extraordinary stuff. Now, Fraser, have you ever finished a detective novel and thought, I could do that? Yeah, absolutely, I have. I think every time I read a detective novel, I think that, yeah. Right. Have you ever actually started? I haven't done anything about it, no. I haven't started but I've got a character. What's he he called? I'm not telling you. It's such a good name. Such a good name. It's it's on my phone. It's been there about two years. I haven't done anything about it, but I've invented the name of the character. Any clues? Is he English? Is he American? He's English, yes. Uh, Anyway, Paul Charles is one of those few people who's got a bit farther than just writing down the name of the character. Paul Charles is a very well-known rock and roll agent. Represents Tom Waits, Crossy Tills and Nash, Nick Lowe, all kinds of people. But he's also had a bit of a sideline for the last 10 years in writing detective novels with a music business background, using what he knows about the music business and obvious background there. But his latest book is not a detective novel. It's called The Last Dance, but it's a novel set against the background of the Irish show band scene of the 60s, which he knew very well as he was growing up. So he came into the pod, and once again, we started by asking him what music was in his house when he was growing up. Well, um, the, my mother's music, the music I would be listening to at a distance, if you know what I mean, not getting connected with, would have been Frank Sinatra, would have been uh, her favourite her favorite record, actually, that she played all the time, was What Do You Want to Make Those Eyes at Me For?, by Emil Ford, and, and, which is, and I made it one of the key songs of, of, of the book, uh, and, and kind of people like that. Uh, and but it, it was like it was wallpaper; it was a backdrop to me. And then one day, I remember I was in the house, and this track came on from this young Liverpool group called the Beatles, and it literally physically stopped me in my tracks. And that was that was the first, when I kind of that's when music became a major major part of of, of my day. What was the song? Can you remember? Love me do. Love you do for yep, that first yep. time. So you you joined a group quite early on, didn't you? I kind of joined a group, but was there, I was a non-playing member because I, I didn't have any music whatsoever. And my dad didn't own a car. That was the other way you could join a group. If your dad owned a car, he would take you to the gig, so you became a member. You just would stand on stage and plonk or whatever. So I didn't have that. I couldn't sing, but I did know a man who played uh, saxophone in a show band. He lived two doors down from me, so... I wanted to continue to hang out with my mates, so I knocked on his door and said, look, can we be your relief group? Which is what you said, and you just get 30 bob for doing that. Right. And he booked my band, the Blues by Five, to, to play relief for, for his show band. So how long were Blues by Five going? Probably for about 15 months, 18 months, something like that. And when are we talking about? Uh, we're talking about uh, probably 60, 60, late, fi- late 65 into early 67, you know. Right. And then we kind of formed a wee club, the Trend Club in Marafelt, where they, they used to play at and stuff. And it was always, there was kind of the, there was the show bands over here and there was the kind of the credible groups over here. Right. And then the show bands would nick the great guitarists or the great singers for, to, to join okay. their ranks. You know. Well, we'll talk more about showmans in a moment. No bother. You subsequently, you were involved with a group whose, whose name I don't dare pronounce, but I always used to read this name. Right. Go on, tell us about Frupp. this group. Frupp. Frupp. Yes. Spelt? F-R-U-U-P-P. Right. OK, and this is what, the early 70s? Uh, yeah, this would have been kind of, well, maybe 74, 75 around then. Um, and as, you know, again, I, I was over. I was living over in London. I came over to London, you know, 
not really known what I was going to do, but knowing that I didn't want to to to, to be in Ireland and, and be part of that, you know, like there was there was not really the kind of music thing. And I and I thought I'd read, I'd get the enemy every week, and I'd read about you know the Marquee Club and, yeah, and yeah. you know the Richmond, all these places, and I'd, you know the, the Beatles would be playing, the Stone, you know, all the groups that you'd kind of only read about. So I come over here, you know, only to realise a news travel late in, in those days. You have to remember, but the Beatles had split up eighteen months before I arrived. You know. Um, which was a big, big bummer. Um, but I, I kind of, yeah, I came over and, and I was there. I was doing that, and then um, I was kind of getting settled in, not really knowing what I was going to do. And then one of the guys that had been in the Blues by Five, the lead guitarist, a guy called Vincent McCusker, he formed this new progressive group right. called Frupp. Right. You know? And his idea was that because it was progressive music, they were never ever going to get away with it in the ballroom supporting show bands. So his idea was to bring it straight to London. The plan was, because I was in London, I was going to these gigs and I was doing a wee bit of writing for a couple of music magazines in Ireland. I knew a few of the, the, the venue owners and stuff like that. So the idea, I was meant to get them a couple of gigs and they were going to go off to Fame and Fortune and I was going to go off and do whatever I was going to do. And the reality was that you know we brought people down to see them the first time they played and they didn't get a manager and they didn't get a record label and they didn't get anybody. So I ended up being you, everything. That was you. Yeah, it was and me. You yes, were indeed. writing lyrics for them as yes, well. Indeed. Yes, now, indeed. Some of these lyrics I was reading got subsequently taken up recently in a yeah, kind of well, hip-hop record. Yeah, a couple of years ago, uh, Talib Quayle, um, uh, and again, I've, I've tried to find out, I can't find out how he picked up on this song. Uh, so this Shiba is some song. song that you wrote in the yeah. early 70s yeah, called Obscure Shiba Prog Rock the band, tune. The, they would have sold probably 5,000 albums at the time. If that. If that. That's me being a manager, <laughs> yes. you have to realise. Are you buying or selling? <laughs> <laughs> and so this languages in, it languishes in complete obscurity for the best part of 40 years. Yeah, yeah. And, and then it, suddenly pops up. He on picks this. it up and, and two things, he picked it up, um, they, they, they took the track. They were very, very gracious, very generous uh, in sharing the publish and there was no... Nothing, well, you know, just, OK, you know, we, we've taken the song, it's based on your song, and they give us a lunch for the publishing. Right. He, he, then he had the great taste to get Nora Jones in to do the guest vocals Which made it. it more of a success. Uh, not only that, but then she did her album two Christmases ago where she did all the, the, the her kind of collaborations and she put on that album as well. It so. absolutely fascinates me, the subject of all these 70s failures suddenly becoming these the <laughs> later paydays. I you know, know, the, I the, know. Kind of, the guys who wrote Ray of Light, that Madonna-based yes, Ray of yeah, Light no, on. Yeah, so yeah, it yeah. absolutely fascinates me. Yeah. Anyway, you, you've, you spend most of the time since actually as an agent. Yes, indeed. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, with a company... Tell us about your company. Yeah, company's called Asgard. Right, which I no doubt lots of people listening to this podcast have have gone to gigs featuring Asgard artists. So, you know, what kind of artists you represented over Uh, the years? uh, At the minute, we work with people like uh, Jackson Brown, Crosby, Stills and Nice, Tom Waits, Ray Davis, Nick Lowe, Elvis Costello, Christy Moore, people like that. Right, and they're all sweethearts. They're all they are actually. (laughs) You know, they they are. I mean, again, my my partner Paul Fan and myself. We've always followed our own musical taste, and, and, and working with people we want to work with are always people that we really, really like. And, and it's a kind of selfish logic that if you really like somebody, you, you can you can do a good job with them. You know? Right, right, right. But there must have been a time during your your long career as an agent when you've you've stood at the back of the hall and thought, "Why did I ever get involved with this clown?" Right. Has that ever happened? Um, 
Well, perhaps, yes. <laughs> but you're not going to tell <laughs> but me. But I'm not going to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, as a sideline, and it's amazing, you know, a busy person like yourself has time for a sideline. Over the last 10 years or so, you've written crime novels. Yes. Yeah. Now, there are many people, no doubt, sit there and, you know, like myself, I read a crime novel once a year and I think, do you know, I could do this. <laughs> and then the following morning, I think better of it. Right, yes, yeah. But you yeah. actually did it, didn't you? You've written a number. Go on, tell us about that. Yeah, well, I, I, again, I mean, funny you used to say it, but actually, Colin Dexter, who who I think is one of the best crime writers, anything. That's how he started writing. He was in Holiday in Wales, and he he read a couple. There was a couple of books in the in the apartment he went to. He read them, and he said, "Thought I could do this. I could do better than this." In fact, and he started to write the first more story immediately. You know, I kind of was just a big, big, big fan of, of British detective fiction, uh, and and I read it a lot. And again, the same thing. You're kind of you're reading it. You're going through. You think, well, actually, you know. I quite like to try this, and if I did try this, what would be my detective would be like? And so I started to kind of, without even thinking of writing a book, I started to think of my detective. A person. Uh, how? What would I name him? How? how what would I give him? A name? Uh, what did you call him? Like, Christy, you... Christy Kennedy. Right. And so you from, started with the name. For, yeah, from two great Irish men, Christy Moore uh, and JFK, and I thought mm. it's a good, strong, mm-hmm. honest sounding name, you know. And then I started to think about his character and about. You know, not making them, you know, I mean, again, you know, usually in, in, in detective things, there's no, they, they don't deal with one part of the life. It's usually people kind of get over the romantic side of their lives by pouring a bottle of whiskey down their throat. Yes, and that's, and, that's, and that's, playing a Tom White's record. Indeed, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> or, or some some kind of jazz, yes. cool jazz thing. But I kind of wanted to deal with that. I wanted to deal with all the stuff. So I kind of started to think about that. And then again, same thing, I could not for the life of me think of a day that I actually said, well, you know what, I, go, I think I'm going to start to do a book. I just remember starting to write, not knowing it was going to be a book. Right. And it kind of went on and, and, it, and I finished it, you know. And then you, and you've done, you know, a number of there, the, well, same yeah, the same character. The same character is now the 10th book's just about to come out. <laughs> yeah. So you've been, you've been productive. But, but anyway, the, the, the new book you've got coming out is, is not a detective. It's not, no. Nope. novel, which is called The Last Dance. Uh, and this is, this is set in the world of Irish show bands. Yes. Now, and one of the things you do in the book is you explain how how bands in Ireland right. became show bands yes. and how, how that whole scene developed. Just yeah, explain yeah. that briefly. Well, it used, it used to be that it started off, there would be Kayleys. It would be like barn dances and Kayleys, the meeting. And then it kind of got to be a bit more sophisticated. They started to have orchestras. And, you know, like a, a mini orchestra, really. It would become a touring orchestra. And then one of them, which were called the Clipper Carton Orchestra, they were the first band to decide that, you know what, this new music that we're playing from England is just a wee bit too to be sitting around all night. So they were the first people to kick away their seats and their music stands and get up and put put on a show and it it became a show band. But really what they used to do is they used to mimic note-perfect versions of the big English and American hits of the day, which were being pumped into Ireland uh, via the radio. But in those days, the American or the British acts didn't make it over as far as Ireland. So these bands went round Ireland playing ballrooms five, six nights a week, 2,000 to maybe 3,000 people a night, the bigger bands would, you know, selling out. You couldn't get near the place, you know. But, but the big important part of this is they were really just the backdrop to the mating game. Yes. They were, you know, you had... At the beginning of a dance, you had all the girls down one side, you had all the boys down the other side. The show band would come on and the, the leader would kind of have his bit of a rap and, you know, OK, the, the first dance will be a foxtrot. So the guy knew, OK, I've got three songs now in which to chat up a girl and hopefully get to the next stage. 
And the big stage that you wanted to get to after you maybe did this two or three times with different girls in the night, you were kind of homing in on the girl that you, that you liked, would be to, to get a promise for the last dance. Right. If you got a promise for the last dance, it meant you may get a chance to walk her home. Okay. So you could go off and have a drink and come back for the last dance. Uh, well, no, no, you didn't. <laughs> you, you stuck no, around. No, you didn't dare do no, that. No, and also you couldn't ask the last dance too late because if she said no, you still needed time for Plan B. Yes. You know, so it, it was a, there was a whole. It was it was quite magic actually. But anyway, out of the scene came some of the most incredible musicians Ireland has ever known. Because they had to be really quick studies, th- totally. these guys. They would, they would Sometimes they would learn the song on the way to the gig in the back of the band bus. So they would, very often wouldn't even have the record. It would be hearing they, on no, the radio. They would, they would tape it from the radio. They would tape it they, from they, the they radio. Great, small so, tape so this this scene grew up in Ireland, and we, what are we talking about, the 60s, mate? Yes, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, late, uh, late, late 50s into, into like 66, 67. OK, but, but it grew up because the British and American acts didn't go. Yeah. There wasn't enough money in it, I suppose. Well, yeah, I mean, and, wasn't was, and touring wasn't as big a thing then. Right, I mean, touring right. was a different thing than what it, what it is now. It was a different kind of system altogether, right. you know. Uh, and, and it was pretty much, there was different circuits. You were booked onto a different circuit. So if you booked onto the Mecca circuit in England, you never got near Ireland. The Mecca right. people would have you working around here all the time. Right, right. And that was like, you know, Lonnie Donegan tells the great stories that, you know, he he never did any touring when he was when he was starting off. You know, he said it wasn't touring. You just gigged every day of your life. You'd yes, been, that's what you, you did. He said there was one year he worked out. He, he played to over a quarter of a million people. Yeah, yeah. You know? Now you, you you said also. I was reading a blog post that you wrote that you you think that this is uh, the show band style is is a kind of unacknowledged influence on Van Morrison. Very much so. Go on, Very, tell us yeah. about that. Well, there's there's a record um, called His Band and Street Choir. It's a great record. Beautiful record, and and kind of and my. I think that after the intensity of Astro Weeks, the jazziness of Moondance, Van kind of wanted to, you know, maybe unwind a bit, maybe relax a bit, maybe have a bit more fun or whatever. So on that, on a Banton Street Choir, there's about five albums that are just a pure, typical sound of the Irish show band, the best of the Irish show bands. And Van had been in... So things like Domino you're talking about. That's a show band. That's That's a show band. That's a show band sound. It's joyous, it's uplifting, it's infectious. It's kind of soul but it's not black American soul, is it? No, it's not. It's very much It's sort not. of Irish, isn't it? Yes, exactly. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's very much Irish soul, you know. Um, and it's, it's, kind of, it's very feel-good, it's very floor-filling, it's very, you know, pe- people kind of snap along to right. it. And Van, say, Van played saxophone in the monarchs, you know. Uh, didn't sing in the monarchs, but he played saxophone. So he would have been kind of... Part of it. Part of it, and he would have known the sound, and he would have known, you know, I mean, the, the best ever Irish show band was a band from Palomina called The Phrase Men, who were just the best, greatest musicians ever. They, their speciality, all these show bands just have their own little different speciality. And The Phrase Men one used to be uh, doing the Beach Boys. And the story goes that the Beach Boys came to Belfast, and the, the, the Phrase Men blagged themselves, themselves into being the support act, and they blew. The Beach Boys off the really? stage. They had, they had the they Beach Boys sing live, which the Beach yeah, Boys exactly, have hardly ever done. Exactly, you know, <laughs> exactly. And they were conscientious about it. Right, you know? right. Anyway, the leader, the musical leader of the Freshman was a guy called Billy Brown, who who's really is the inspiration for, for my story. Right. Again, unlike a lot of the Irish show band members, he 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 also wrote his songs. He he did a lot of the range and stuff. And he's such a beautiful, beautiful voice. And even in that thing that I was saying earlier, Rome, by the show bands were the backdrop to what was going on. I remember going to see the Freshman a couple of times up in, in Port Rush, and you'd have this thing whereby the people would be dancing, they'd be concentrating on the thing, and Billy Brown would take the microphone to sing, and he'd sing something like, you know, uh, 
carry me a mine or when smoke gets in your eyes. And I swear to you, the entire ballroom would stop in its tracks and just be glued to hearing it because he was that he was that brilliant. Really, he really was that brilliant. It was kind of you know people didn't know why they were stopped. It just it was like. Oh my goodness! You know. So what happened to these guys? I mean, they never got to record, or hardly well, ever. Well, see, the problem was this: is that they were making such phenomenal money that the ballroom owners or the managers didn't really want them going away and being sissies and writing songs, <laughs> or or going into recording studios. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, so they never really got a chance. And then, by the time it got towards the end of the sixties, a lot of these talented people had become very jaded. Had you know. Were rich beyond their wildest dreams. Really, had very very soft mattresses, um, and you know had no real incentive anymore. So they were seriously wealthy. Oh my In goodness. terms of r- rural Ireland, or they, yeah, they were. You know, they were like whenever. I mean, uh, a guy called Jim Aiken, who was a promoter, a big big promoter of, of rock music, and, and one of the Ireland's best, whatever. He told me a story that the first the first. Uh, um, show band he promoted was the Royal Show Band in the Ulster Hall of Belfast and at that point he was a teacher and was doing promotions part time he made more money on that night as the promoter than he did in an entire year being a teacher you yeah, know yeah. the show bands were making so much money and as I say it was all folding money it was all yeah, yeah. you know and and all they used to do with it really was kind of put it in a mattress and buy land do you, do you think there is uh, there is some relationship between that tradition and the kind of Subsequent world bestraddling success of people like you too. You know, there's something in in the Irish well uh, personality uh, or whatever. Uh, uh, yeah, that I mean, lends uh, itself to that. I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think without the shoe bands, there's definitely no Thin Lizzy. There's no Skid Row. There's no Taste. There's no Rory Gallagher. Rory was in a show. But they're band all well. showmen, weren't they're they? All, they're all, all those guys. Yeah, they're even, all showmen. Even yeah. They were, yeah, yeah, they were. They were not. You and, know. and and you know, can a lot of you know when bands are starting off, it's easy when you're being successful to be a showman on stage. You know. I remember Frupp used to play a lot with Peter Gabriel uh, and Genesis in the early days, you know, and we were just, again, the same thing, you know, and it took a lot of bottle because you're playing in some clubs, people are drinking, what's that geezer got that stupid effing fox head in his head for, or whatever, you know, and the same thing in Ireland, you know, to have the confidence to be a showman from the beginning, the way Bono was. I think there's a really a lot of, good a lot of, point. A lot of guts, a lot I of I notice this very often, Fraser and I have discussed it, in Australian and New Zealand groups, they've got the same thing. Yeah, you're right. It's actually. a very yeah, similar yeah, characteristic. Right. Yeah. They're not shy about They're it. They're not scared all. of the bad haircuts. They, they, you know? they treat everything as a proper show. Yeah. So as an agent now, when you go and look at potential young clients, is that some one of the things you find yourself thinking? Why don't you just say your name, introduce the songs, you know, do well, all the... Yeah, I mean, all again, yeah. Again, um, I, I mean, I you know, I love when I go and see a new band. You know, and even when I go and see big bands that I don't know, I I, I'm, and I make sure I get there because I love the way people take the stage. You can tell so much by the way people come on the stage. You know, for the, the the band or the lead singer or the whatever, just the whole thing that goes down. The way they present themselves, the way that you know the subtleties of their movements—are they shy? Are they nervous? Are they bursting to get ready to do it? Are they? Do they go to the microphone? Do they let? Do they wait till after the first song or the seconds before they say something? You know. So I, what do you think they should do? Go to the microphone first or, or afterwards? They should do this what, useful advice. This no, they, well, they too should, late for me, but it might be. They should do what they feel in their heart. What, oh, right, what they're okay. mo- they should. The thing that you should never do is do what you think other people are doing. You should always do what what's there for you, and that's what works best for the audience as well. Right. You know, 
because it, it just it kind of it, it makes that connection that much quicker. You're yeah. right, right. Well, yeah. the, the book's called the, the Last Dance. Indeed, and, indeed. Uh, do you do you ever look around? You know, with knowing what you do about music, do you look around at other neglected areas of music and think there's a book in there, or there's a you know that would make the background. To uh, to a novel. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I did uh, I did a, a similar kind of approach. Uh, I did a book called The First of the True Believers, which uses the Beatles story uh, as as a backdrop to to a, a rites of passage story. You know? Right. Uh, and again, you know, the, one of the things I had, I I, I had this idea once uh, that I did a bit of work on to write uh, a story about a fictitious rock star. You know, uh, but be I'm minute in the detail as I am in this. And, you know, when it gets down to it, it's boring if you don't know the person. You mean, you, I, I don't, you can't do it in fiction, you know. You ha- like, if you're writing a story... You can't invent a rock star. You can't, no. And, and, and it doesn't have the same impact. If you're reading it and you, you're, you, you're not thinking it's Rob, this is Robert Plant's story or this is Elton John's story or this is Jackson Brown's story or this is whatever, it doesn't have the same impact on you. Right. No matter how well you write it, no matter how powerful you, you put it together, it still doesn't have that thing. So I, I gave up on that. But I used a bit of the character of that. Of, uh, I had a rock star on it and I used that... In the new Kennedy story, you right. know, I, I don't want to throw everything away. Right, right, yeah. right. So you're still busy with that. What, okay. uh, what, what? Which of your acts are about to be on tour? Um, at the minute, um, uh, Christy Moore just finished some dates. The Waterboys are out doing, doing a lot of shows at the minute. Uh, Crosby, Sills and Nash are just about to start a South American tour. The Chieftains are about to start their 50th anniversary tour, which is a, which is a big one. Um, uh, and uh, Ray Davis is uh, about to start to do some more dates again as well. So it's it's, it's, I mean, as you know from the business, is that all the acts are going back on the road again. You right. know, the record industry is pretty much over. Because they can all make a living on the road. They can, yeah, yeah, right. and a good living on the road, right. you know, and, and they're having trouble, you know, covering their marketing costs on, on their CD sales. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, very best of luck with that book, Paul. Thank you very much, David. Thanks for coming in. At my pleasure. Thank you very much. This is a junction in the Word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. Paul Charles talking about his book, The Last Dance. Really interesting, that stuff about Van Morrison, wasn't it, Fraser? It the, was, yeah. The, it's a whole new light on Van Morrison for me. You know, the idea that songs like Domino and stuff from his band in the Street Choir or the live album The Rainbow were very much informed by that whole kind of Ballymena Saturday night full dance hall thing, you know, it's kind of live music isn't it, you know, yeah. it's not the way people think of Amrosen at all, because no. he's such a misery guy but, uh, it, I shall go away and listen to that with a whole new, uh, whole new head on uh, okay, our final book is Underground Overground, which is a passenger's history of I can't, the tube. You can't say that without me thinking wombling free in my head. So carry <laughs> no, on. No, no, I know. Uh, by Andrew Martin. Andrew's a journalist and writer who's taken his passion for railways of all kinds into his work. And, and like Paul's written fictional books with a music background, uh, Andrew's written fictional books with a, with a railway background. Uh, but his latest one is factual, uh, and it's based on his passion for and passionate interest in the London underground. And once again, when he got here, we started by asking him what music was in his house when he was growing up. My mother liked Jim Reeves. Um, my, my mother died when I was quite young, so I was left with my father, who bought one record in his whole life, which was uh, worrying, given that he was you know, my only parent. It was the theme from MASH, Suicide is Painless. <laughs> So you, you he seemed up, to like very mawkish stuff. <laughs> you grew up in Yorkshire, though. 
I grew up in York, yes, in Yorkshire. And your dad worked on the railways? He worked on the railways for 40 years, yes. So that, that gave you early access to the London Underground? It gave me Tell early, us about that. It gave me early access primarily to, 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 to the rail, overground railways. We had free travel, first class free travel. First on the class? Unlimited, more or less unlimited first class travel. And I availed myself of that from the age of 12. I would say to my dad, I'm off to London. He would just say, don't lose your priv pass, meaning my privilege ticket, which once I did, I did lose it once. And it was very embarrassing because I lost it in Wardour Street, of course, <laughs> you know, being 15. And uh, a man wrote, found it, uh, and I thought that it was very sort of, um, you know, um, pu- uh, what's the word, um, uh, prurient. He said, this was found in Wardour Street. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, so you, you used to get on the trains at the age of 13, 14 and just set off down to I would Lund- go to London and I, my f- routine was to go on an early train to London, walk around London in a complete daze, using the underground. The underground was my crutch, my ally in London, because it was the only way I could make sense of the city. And uh, then I'd come back to York on a train, which doesn't exist anymore, but which left King's Cross at about 1.30 in the morning. And uh, one thing I always remember about London is my hair always needed washing when I came back. Well, I've not washed my hair very infrequently, but it, it needed washing every time I went to London. Um, and it was it was a dirtier city then, and the underground especially was dirty, and the tiles were falling off the walls. It was being managed for decline. This was the 1970s. And it was very sooty with a crepuscular light to it. And a, I, I came across a word which I very late jammed into the book as being the the description of a typical underground tunnel at that time, the atmosphere was sooty and particulate. Yeah. You could actually see you could the dirt it, in the yeah. air. Um, but I liked that. I found it Dickensian. I, I liked the atmosphere of it. Right, right. I've got to ask you, I've got to ask Fraser here, because you also had an experience of being thrown in the London transport system very early on, didn't you? You tell me about your... About well, your yeah, when, when I arrived from uh, New Zealand as a 12-year-old, my mother's idea of looking after us for the day, we were... First of all, my dad had, because he was a cheapskate, had booked us into a Salvation Army hostel, pretending we were homeless. So my first week in London was spent in a dormitory with a load of drunks. But my mother would, uh, would basically buy me a travel card and say, off you go, as a 12-year-old, and I would wander around London. <laughs> Of course, you'd probably get arrested for it now. I was going to say, yeah. did you find it frightening at the time? No, I didn't. It was just right. a big adventure. Yeah, nobody would do it nowadays. No. Right. But did you... Get, I thought you were going to say they put you on the circle line <laughs> and yeah. go around all the time. <laughs> do you, I, I still have that very clear memory, Andrew, of coming down to London from Yorkshire as a child, usually accompanied by parents or whatever. And the first time you entered the tube, you went down the escalator at King's Cross, you were suddenly surrounded by people who all knew where they were going... Yes. And you didn't at all. And it's still a very strong mental image for me. Is is these people a blur of people going in oh, many yeah. different well, directions? You should try that Howrah station in Calcutta, uh, where I was two weeks ago, where you were literally knocked down, if you're not careful, by these great waves of people. All with this very upper-class woman saying, I think, in Bengali about the train times. Um, but what I liked about the underground in, in those days, in the 70s, was that you had a very clear distinction between a rush hour, which I tended to avoid, and, and the rest of the time. So in the middle of the day, in the middle of a Tuesday morning, and if you were a schoolboy on holiday, you were privileged to be there at that time, it was pretty empty and it was dreamy and it was quiet because there weren't all these announcements. Now, because of the expanding population of London and the 
Ken Livingston and his um, travel card and uh, and cheap fares. The, the tube is always overcrowded, overcapacity, as they say. So it's not as relaxing as it used to be. Oh, I see. So you think that's the downside of access uh, to these I, things? I, I think Ken Livingston is a transport genius, but he completely changed the tube and he, he, um, he made it crowded, basically. It's been <laughs> ever more crowded ever since. So I've got to talk about two, two things that you mentioned there. Uh, the, the dirt on the tube... One of the reasons that it was dirty and horrible was people could smoke yeah. on the tube, which is now amazing, if you think back yes, on it. it. Now, my memory, you can tell me if this is right or wrong, I seem to remember that you could smoke on every carriage on the tube apart from two. They had two non-smoking mm. carriages. And then they switched that round so you couldn't smoke except on those two. Is that, is that the case? Well, to be honest, I can't quite remember. They abolished smoking in stages. At first, um, the first limitation said that you could not smoke on, I think, the underground, the subterranean platforms, possibly. Um, and then it became that you couldn't smoke at all after the King's Cross fire, which was caused by a burning... Um, cigarette end, and incidentally, I often wonder if the person who dropped that cigarette in that escalator at King's Cross knew that they dropped it. Uh, no, no culprit was ever was ever found. But um, I used to uh, go on the Northern Line in the uh, 1980s when the nine, what the train fans called the 19, the 38s were were making a. a um, a reappearance. These were 1938 tube stock, which were uh, had a lovely, cosy interior of red and green, and they were brought back onto the Northern Line in, I think, the mid 80s because of a shortage of of the newer trains, and they had sycamore slats on the floor, which was very beautiful, but perfectly cigarette ends sized so that you could have it would fit cigarette ends in alignment yes. in between the slats, and I always did go in the smoking carriage. I seem to remember because it just seemed. Cozier. I, I like. I have always liked smokers, and um, so I sought out the smoke. And then, of course, once you're in the smoking carriage, you would smoke. It was the done thing. It yeah, was you may silly as well. to be yeah, in there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> if you didn't enter as a, you know, if you entered as a non-smoker, you emerged as a smoker, didn't you? Now, the other thing that you mentioned is the announcements, which seem to just increase all the time. So you you're permanently being spoken to yes. on the tube well, nowadays, but being told where you are. How do you feel about that? There is a woman I know called Val Whedon who got an MBE for campaigning against public noise, and she's the head of the uh, main noise campaigning group in this country. She, this week, gave an award, a sort of anti-award, to London Underground for having the most disruptive and annoying announcements. And sometimes I'll be on my station, Highgate, and there'll be three announcements at once. Uh, one on a rec- uh, on a loop saying, take your newspapers and your litter home with you. Another one, perhaps live, saying there are delays occurring on the Northern Line, giving you the details. And then the other automatic one, triggered by the arrival of the train, saying the next train is, is, is for Morden via Bank. Uh, so that's three at once, all too loud and echoing. And they are louder in the off-peak, because insofar as the tube is ever not crowded, they, they echo more in an empty station. Um, I think the trouble is that there was a chap called O'Toole running the underground in the late 90s and early uh, this century, and he was very keen on public information. And he'd done surveys, and he had surveys which proved it was right to have all these announcements because people wanted to be kept informed. Also, there's a requirement uh, to, uh, to, to state that the station stops because of visually impaired people, which I'm fine with, of course, yeah. that's absolutely fair. 
but they're nevertheless. You don't need the Metropolitan Police saying, thieves will lose no opportunity to remove <laughs> your personal belonging. That reminds me of that sketch by Peter Cook where he's a thick copper and he says, we believe this robbery to be the work of thieves. <laughs> it has all the hallmarks of telltale removal of property. <laughs> So in your, your, your book, Underground Overground, which is subtitled The Passenger's History of the Tube, um, you, you trace it right from its beginnings as, as a jumble of pretty unconnected lines, really, and its, its eventual organisation into this harmonious thing that we're, we, we deal with every day in London. There's two particular heroes whose names keep coming up in the history of the tube. Frank Pick and Harry Beck. Both sound like names invented by a casting director mm. in the 1940s. Yes. Tell us about those two guys and what they did. Well, both looked the part as well. I mean, both very fastidious men, always with a row of pens, I should imagine, in the top pocket. Pick was got involved in the underground in the early 20th century. He was the basically the number two after a man called Lord Stanley for much of the first half of the 20th century. He um, was from York, like I am, and that's partly why I'm so interested in Pick. And he would come down to London as a boy, just as I did, and he didn't understand London. And he wanted to rationalise London, and that was his idea when he got in charge of the underground or, or became the number two. Um, he created the roundel, basically, that was down to him to give a uniformity to the design, and he generated and commissioned all these posters of the interwar period, which were so beautiful, and one of the reasons I love the tube, and which promote a glamorous London, a London where everybody is not at home watching telly, which is what they're doing now. So it's saying, come to the theatre, go to a cocktail bar. And he himself, actually, I think practically a teetotaler, um, but it was rather decadent because they were always trying to get people to stagger their journeys, just as they are now. So Pick would commission posters saying things like, play between six and nine, or even one, why go home? <laughs> you know, stay in town and have a good time. And lovely seductive images of the theatres in London. The theatre-goer travels by tube. And then there'd be a picture of a woman in a fur stole and a man in a dinner jacket. Well, it looked like they would travel by chauffeur-driven car. Yeah. But it made the underground glamorous. And Pick saw the beauty of the underground um, and tried to promote it in that way. He was also responsible, along with Stanley, for extending the... Piccadilly lines and the northern lines in the interwar period, which was the main generator of suburban growth. So he made London the vast, unwieldy thing it is today, and by the end of his career on the underground, by the Second World War, he admitted he'd messed it up. He'd made London even more baffling and confusing than it had been when he was a boy. So it's, it's tragic in a way. Oh, really? And what about the other guy, Harry Beck? Uh, Harry Beck was the designer of the map, um, and he'd been a draftsman for London Underground, but was um, not working for them at the time that he came up with the map. Even though Pick was very aesthetic and had great taste, Pick wasn't very keen on the map, and it took a while for the map to be accepted, this you know, schematic, diagrammatic map, which was based on um, electrical circuit boards, I think. Um, Beck said that previously the underground had not been a plate of spaghetti, but a plate of vermicelli, the, the map, you know, even worse than spaghetti. So he, he did this map which um, is slightly distorts the network, and I think that's why the people who worked on the underground were at first reluctant to see their, their baby, as it were, caricatured and distorted in this way. But nevertheless, the map is a design. Because that's the thing in our heads, isn't it? That's, that is what's that's in the your mental head. map of London. And that was now. my mental map. That was my key to London. It's still my key to It's still how I understand London. But it is a distortion. There used to be um, a little sort of half centimetre on the end of the map, which showed the eastern end of the central line, Epping to Ongar, which has now been closed down. 
as I say, as I say, half a centimetre. But in fact, that stretch is longer than the whole of the Bakerloo line. Uh, but you wouldn't know it from the map. No, 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 right. Now, you were talking earlier about they were trying to encourage people to stay in London and so forth. Fraser and I were talking about this before you came in. Do there used to be bars in, in tube stations yes. in London? Where were they? Um, they? They went after the King's Cross fire as well. There was one... Well, on the Metropolitan, the first underground line, 1863, I think there were plenty of bars. And there, I, there's a, something in my book about an account from the girls who worked in the bars. And there would be racy gentlemen hanging about trying to chat them up. Um, the girls who worked in the bars were allowed sort of a measure of spirits every half hour to keep them going in the sooty <laughs> atmosphere. Um, there was certainly in the early 80s a bar at Liverpool Street and there was one on the circle, and there was one at, at Sloan Square, a famous one which crops up briefly in one of Evelyn Waugh's novels, um, Vile Bodies, I think. Or a man thinks it's the social centre of London, mistakenly. But in fact, it was always busy, and I met a woman at a dinner party who remembered going there in the early 80s, just before it was closed down. It's a little bit, it's now a, a shop called Treats, little kiosk. Um, and um, the barmaid knew all the men, city blokes, who lived out west in Fulham and things. And she'd say, when the trains come in, she'd keep an eye on the train. She'd say, tell, it's your Wimbledon. <laughs> so he'd then down his pint and, and get onto the train. Um, but it, drinking goes with smoking, so they, um, right, right. they stopped the bars after the fire. So the, the underground generally, you know, is one of those fertile grounds for mythology. You, you, uh, you, a few things you touch on in your book I just wanted to ask you about. One is pigeons on trains. Tell us about that. Well, it's one of the things that I call um, a rite of passage on the tube or a notch on the travel card, which was a phrase suggested to me by a man who, who wrote a letter to me uh, about the, 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 the things that tell you that you're a tr- you've arrived as a true Londoner. And one is seeing a pigeon get onto a train with great insouciance, which they do. Uh, as I said in my book, a pigeon always looks as if it knows exactly what it's doing. <laughs> it gets on the train and then it gets off. It waits... You know, it get, or, uh, when it gets on, it also waits for the passengers to alight. And then, uh, <laughs> so it gets so off at another why, stop. Why are they doing this? They are looking for food. Now, this this was established as the reason that they did it, but there was a big correspondence about it in, I think, in New Scientist, possibly, in, in, in a few years ago. And, and some people concluded, because some scientists had proclaimed very, you know, with great certainty, well, all they're doing is looking for food. So then what people concluded was that they were actually travelling to another station in the hope that there might be more food in another station. Oh, right. Of course, that's not right. They're not that clever. <laughs> what they're doing is just thinking there might be some crumbs on, on this thing. But it rather looks as if they're commuting, It looks as it? if they're commuting, yes. <laughs> Tell us about Bumper Harris. Bumper Harris was a man who probably did, although he's a creature of semi-mythology, demonstrate the first escalator on the underground, which I think was at Earl's Court in about 1909. He had one leg, the other leg was wooden, and he stumped up and down the the wooden escalator. I think it was just a a coincidence that he had one leg. He wasn't there because he had one leg. He had worked for the underground in another capacity, and in fact, the story is that he'd been injured whilst working on on the Metropolitan Line or something. Um, But people might have concluded that it was a bit worrying that this man supposedly showing how safe an escalator was did, in fact, only have one leg. Or maybe it was to say that you can, you can use it with ease even if you, even if you do have one leg. Right. But uh, the, if you read the main sort of authorities on the underground, they're absolutely divided about whether Bumper Harris even existed. So, so, um, so tube historians actually argue tube about Tube historians stuff, do not seem to... They certainly don't agree. 
about it. <laughs> right. Now, you interviewed, in, in I think in the late 90s, the, the, the woman who, 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 like many London Transport employees, had been there for years, uh, who ran the famous lost property office at, at Baker Street, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, which is it? still there. Um, uh, Maureen Beaumont, her name was. She'd worked there for decades. I mean, she said that people were were just very brazen about the things that they'd lost. Men would come in saying, well, I've got a suitcase full of pornography. That. <laughs> I'm really cross about lost. Have you, have you got it by any chance? Um, or they'd come up saying they'd lost a blow-up doll. Um, and uh, when I was on the, my recent tour of it, man, somebody had lost 144 condoms. Uh, a box of a giant-sized box of condoms. Anyway, whether they'd ask for that, I don't know. But she said that people um, were often... She said her job is really worthwhile because very often people are in tears of gratitude when they get the thing back. Uh, she's, she's gone now, and the uh, present chap is a nice chap, but very concerned that you don't get the wrong impression about the, um, the lost property office. He said that nothing is kept by the people who work in the lost property office. Um, it's all sold off. Anything that's not collected is, is sold off for charity. About 25% of the stuff is returned to the owner. Right, right. There's a mission statement in the office which says, London lost property, transport lost property office, our mission, to return lost property to its rightful owner. <laughs> and I thought, seeing that, well, you can't argue with that. That's, that's about right. <laughs> now, you, you've, uh, you've also written fiction uh, based on your interest in railways and tubes and so forth. Uh, I read years ago uh, a book of yours called The Necropolis Railway, uh, which is based on a, on, a, on a real railway line. Tell us just briefly about that. That was um, a line that connected London to the biggest cemetery in the world, which I think remains in physical area the biggest cemetery in the world. It's still open, uh, Brookwood Cemetery in Surrey. And um, the, the railway went from a little station just outside Waterloo, and it was called the Necropolis Station. And the idea was that, everyone, that London was the city of the living, and then there would be this necropolis, the city of the dead. And literally everybody who died in London would be taken by train to Brookwood Cemetery. This was the idea of the London Necropolis and Mausoleum Company, established in about 1842, and it lasted till the Necropolis Station was bombed out in about 1942. Um, but after about 1900, the scheme didn't really work because of cremation. You didn't need to be taken to Brookwood to be cremated. Also, a lot of new cemeteries were built in central London. But if you come out of Waterloo and look to the left, you can see the old Necropolis Station, most of which survives, and it looks exactly as you would expect it to look. It looks like a haunted house. Right. Um, so what, what places do you advise people to look at on the underground? If anybody was coming down to London, uh, you know, this summer, the Olympic Games or whatever, and, uh, and what's the kind of amazing sites that you point them at or the curious well, I would, places? Well, that... there are two aspects of the underground. One is the grotesquerie of it and the Dickensian decrepitude, which I like. A lot of that does remain. And uh, also the, the, um, the sheer beauty of a lot of it and the... Um, gargantuan scale of say the jubilee line extension you know stations um on uh, I, I can't remember which it might be canary wharf you can fit the qe2 it is said into that station um it's uh, it's superbly stylish and beautiful and it's it's what's called future proofed is the jubilee line extension meaning that it's big <laughs> um, because they built the previous new line was the Victoria Line and that was too small the Victoria Line, have a look at that because it's interestingly sort of squalid that was built in the 60s on the cheap little 
tiles of a horrible, insipid blue bathroom tiles. What's your favourite station? Um, I like uh, Baker Street at the at the, um, the what used to be the Metropolitan Line there, but is now well, let's say the Circle Line, which is entirely overarched with brick, a jaundiced coloured brick, which is very moody. Uh, I'm surprised it's allowed because it's very dark that station. Um, and the Victorians were amazed by that station because it didn't have a glass roof, it didn't have an open roof, it was this brick arch, which is very claustrophobic, but very striking. And also, if you go on the Metropolitan Line east of King's Cross, um, try and look at when the station comes into the open, try and clean out, you can't lean out the window, but go close to the window and look up, and you will see that you're in this enormous brick ravine with buttresses going over the top and at one point the Fleet River going over the top in a great big iron conveyance um, that's really like Gormenghast it's so beautiful right. um, and uh, it's, that's, my, that's probably my favourite bit of the, the between uh, King's Cross and Farringdon on the Metropolitan Right, and do, do you uh, anticipate the tube continuing to grow so that it eventually engulfs the whole of southern England? Uh, physically, I don't think it will... No, but I think that it will get more and more crowded and the um, giant programme of refurbishment that's going on now is going to increase capacity by something like... Because it's quite tragic, 30%, but the trouble is that it's 50% over capacity or something like that. It's always still going to be very, very crowded and the only answer to that is the answer that Pick was trying to promote back in the 1930s stagger the journeys it's ridiculous that everybody goes to work and comes back from work at the same time and this is what the transport theorists are trying to get their heads around at the moment. And do you look upon the Olympics uh, and its potential effect on the transport system with dread or uh, uh, Fraser and I we, we, we think it can't possibly make any difference if London's busy enough already. I think I, I'm, gonna, you know, I'm not going to the Olympics you know. but I, I, when I was a kid my dad took me up to see the Rugby Challenge final every year at Wembley and I looked forward to that every year not because I was interested in rugby I had no interest in rugby at all but because I liked going on the, on the tube up to Wembley and I think there will be some people going to the Olympics and their secret thought especially if they go on the Jubilee Line extension um, to the Olympic station you know to Stratford they'll be secretly thinking well I enjoyed the tube journey more <laughs> thanks very much thank you If you've been affected by any of the issues in this podcast, go to wordmagazine.co.uk or apply at your newsagent every Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.